Episode 4, Midwest Country. Welcome to Radio War Stories. In every episode, hosts Dave Jagger and Don Nelson reach into their arsenal of decades of radio experience to entertain you with their most amusing, enthralling, and interesting stories. Suit up and get ready for today's episode. Hi, this is Dave Jagger. And Don Nelson. And we are here with more Radio Wars stories. I'm going to jump right into it. I'm not going to waste any time whatsoever. And I'm just going to start talking about a great story that happened to me when uh, uh, I was at uh, KEEZ-FM. One of my first, the first commercial radio job I ever had. Was that easy? K-E-E-Z. It was easy listening. It wasn't. We played some vocals, but once again, middle of the road. Uh, and you mentioned in uh, an earlier episode about Conrad. Now, back in the old days, if you had a radio in your car, and everybody did, there were two little spots on your radio dial. Remember, Don? And they were the sure. Conrad stations. Well, 640 and uh, 6 something, and uh, just yeah. to the right of the glove just box. Just to the right of the glove box. Right, yeah. 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 So the Conrad stations were where if something happened, you were supposed to tune in to whatever the Conrad signal was in your area. And then they would give you instructions in case, you know, the nuclear attack was on the way. My Conrad story actually runs into the years of it being changed to the emergency broadcast system. Mm -hmm. Every radio station had a big receiver inside their studio. And every now and again, it would go off and we would have to do the or send out an EBS test. So... On this particular day, it was a Sunday morning. I was working, obviously, a part-timer. And uh, I was on the air. Beautiful day. The automation was running along just fine there at Keys FM. And then the EBS goes off. And I run over to the teletype, and I grab it out of the studio, and I'm reading it, and it said, this is an alert. This is an alert. This is not a test. Open up your Conrad, or not your Conrad, but your EBS your little, envelopes. Your little envelope. You had with the two secret envelopes codes, with right. the secret codes, right. and the, the code was on, uh, they had come across the teletype. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, and I'm in the radio station by myself. It's Sunday morning. So I, what do I do? I call the program director. He says, well, I don't hear anything on WOAI, who was the big AM station in town, and they were one of the uh, EBS main stations. He goes, go ahead and open it up and get the cartridge ready to run. Because the cartridge was, you know, this is an alert from the emergency broadcast system. You need to, you know, bend over and and, put your head between your legs in case you're posterior. (laughs) And he says, go ahead. And he says, but don't play the cart just yet. So I'm shaken. I'm scared to death. And I open up the thing. He goes, make sure that it matches up with whatever you see from the teletype from the news agency and I did and it did so this was the false alarm that had got sent out in 1971 or 72 mm-hmm. uh, 71 I believe and I was just petrified a couple of the radio stations in town did go off the air they actually ran their announcements and signed off the air. That's what you were supposed to do. Just to leave room for the big boys. Exactly. Right. To leave room for any other major signals that would be booming into your town. And I, we were, 
I think we were the FM affiliate for EBS, so that's why I waited. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if I run this cartridge, if I play this announcement, all the other FMs may take the lead, do the same thing, and go off the air. I'm looking out the window. Everything looked nice and calm on the streets of downtown San Antonio. No mushroom clouds. No mushroom clouds anywhere to be seen. And it turned out, I get the phone call from the program director a half an hour or 45 minutes later, agonizing through this whole thing. And he said, thank goodness it was a false alarm. Somebody sent the wrong signal down the teletype and nobody, there's no attack. Get on the air and say that. (laughs) (laughs) I have to? Yes. (laughs) Okay. So I did. I opened up the mic and I said, Listeners, if you've uh, heard something about uh, an attack uh, on your radio station and you've tuned in to us, then please know that it is not real. It was a false alarm. Boom! Hit the button for the automation to come back in. You mentioned an interesting word. Actually, a couple of interesting uh, letters. F-M. Mm-hmm. Uh, because fast-forwarding to uh, me moving to Indianapolis in 1967... Indianapolis was an eight-station market. Really? Right. There were four full-time AMs, four daytime AMs, and nobody gave a big hairy you-know-what about the FM. That's true. Because it didn't matter. Yeah. Now, there were some people who had, had put FMs on the airs years before, going all the way from me back to Jonesboro, Arkansas, because I can remember my KBTM AM and crystal clear, static-free KBTM-FM. <laughs> but all they did was duplicate the AM. The simulcast both right. Yeah, it was all simulcast. Nobody had separate programming because there were no FM receivers. No cars had FM receivers on them, and FM just wasn't important. Mm-hmm. So I got a little ahead of myself there, but I just no. wanted to do that whole FM thing. And when I... FM used to... Remember, it was fine music. Of course. Everybody used to think FM was only for classical or highbrow music or something like that. Very easy because the signal was so clear. We'd never play rock and roll on this frequency. It's fine music. Right. Can you imagine Led Zeppelin on FM? <laughs> exactly. When And I, the story I told of my buddy and myself standing there watching the DJ at KONO radio, truly across the hall was K-I-T-Y FM, Kitty FM. And that's what they did. They played a lot of beautiful kind of music and that kind of stuff. They had full-time jocks, though. They had everybody on the air and uh, just a full lineup, just like the AM radio station did. But even back in the in the 60s. When but, I, but watching the progress of this whole thing, back uh, for me, back to Moline and WQUA, when one of our owners uh, walked in and I had just leased uh, a Xerox machine. All right, Mm -hmm. and this Xerox copy machine was about the size of a small car. I mean, literally, it was huge. (laughs) And my owner walked over, looked at that, and said, What is that? And I said, It's a Xerox copy machine. And he looked at it, and I put a piece of paper in, and I did it for him. Mm -hmm. And he said, Well... We've been in the newspaper business, but I thought we were out of the publishing business. <laughs> and he walked off uh, wow. in, in total 
uh, a disarray over what on earth did, I had managed to purchase without him knowing it. Did the Xerox machine that you bought, did it print to that uh, heat paper? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, because yeah. those were the original Xerox right. machines, as mm-hmm. I recall, until before you could just print on plain paper. Right. Now that, those were, in, as I recall, those were a little expensive, but you yeah. said you leased it, We right? leased it, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, leasing was, you know, the salvation of a lot of us. Fast-forwarding <laughs> quite some time, uh, I leased uh, a word processor, and this would be 1980 now when I've left Indianapolis mm-hmm. and I'm uh, opening uh, a broadcast consulting firm, and the word processor that I leased, which was a Lexitron, cost $15,000. Just for the machine itself. Yeah, and all it had was a little green screen, Mm -hmm. and it processed your words. That was it. Yeah. Can you imagine? Did you save it to files? Could you print or anything? Uh, No, you did floppies. You You saved it to floppies. All right. Limitable floppy. Don't know how we got off on that. That's okay. That's all right because it leads me into uh, another story, and that's to uh, my uh, my mentor, to a certain degree and to a large degree, guy by the name of R. E. Bob Woodman. Sounds like a politician, doesn't it? Sure, he was. Vote for R. E. Bob Woodman, (laughs) County Commissioner, Precinct Three. Bob was uh, a guy that hired me and my buddy Phil, along with the program director there at the time. Uh, And Bob taught us a lot. Uh, It was a smaller market, so we were actually very lucky to kind of get those jobs because Phil was a lot better than I was. I'll admit that. But we we learned so much there and had so much fun being on the air. I still talk to Bob to this day. He is from Tuscaloosa, Alabama and lives back in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and is still involved with radio a bit. He uh, works for the PBS affiliate there and helps with uh, some of their fundraising things for the radio station. But uh, Bob taught us a lot. He gave us our first really good break and big break. Keys FM in San Antonio, almost like you said, it, it was so rated so low, it was hardly a factor in the market whatsoever. Uh, so when we moved to Victoria and got to do Top 40 Radio, boy, I was on top of the world. Now I'm a star. Now I'm playing the hits. And uh, we had great promotions, gave stuff away on the air, and it was just wonderful. But we had still were a 5 a.m. to midnight radio station. Right. And it was owned by Wendell Mays. Wendell Mays still alive, 90-something years old. It lives in Austin, bless his heart. Uh, Wendell... Uh, just gave us free reign. Bob was a new general manager down there. He had moved down from KNOW in Austin. And uh, we were all kind of learning all of this at the same time. Uh, Bob is a GM and the rest of us is disc jockeys or whatever our role may have been. Uh, we had 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. a guy by the name of Eli Ozuna. Eli Ozuna did a one-hour Hispanic radio show before I went on the air at 6 a.m., and Eli's regular job was a postman. He was a mail deliverer. So Eli would be on the air for an hour, and he was duck, 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 playing his Hispanic music, and they loved But Eli, all of a sudden, started doing something unusual or had been doing it all along. Eli would take requests, 
People would mail in their requests to him. With a dollar in the envelope? With a $1 bill in the envelope. <laughs> I knew I saw you that got coming. It. You got it. And our receptionist, nobody knew Eli was doing this. They would just put his mail in his little ba- mailbox and we'd go on our way. But this one particular day, the uh, receptionist is sorting the mail and a dollar <laughs> bill falls out of one of Eli's envelopes. Well, so we got somebody in the radio station that could read Spanish and they said, oh my gosh, they want Eli to play this song and they're giving him a dollar for it because Eli asks for a dollar if you want me to play your song. Is that the origination of a dollar a holler? It may have been, but it was also way around the same time as payola and you couldn't do that. You can't take money for playing music on the air. So Bob had to call Eli in and say, Eli, you can't do that anymore. And it just about killed Eli. Why not? I've been doing it for years. If you continue to do it, Eli, we're going to have to let you go. But we cannot let you take dollars for (laughs) dollar-a-holler requests anymore on the radio station. Boy, he was not too happy. And Eli was a big guy. I think the general manager was a little afraid he was going to get his his, uh, face clocked by this guy because he was a big guy. But uh, it turned out that he finally settled down, and we finally got rid of Eli, and we were ready to play the hit starting at 5 a.m. Starting bright and early. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, these things just, these parallels just keep happening because years later, I was involved with a company that bought uh, an AM-FM in Utica, Rome, New York. And every Sunday morning, we had a two-hour Polish show. Nobody at the radio station spoke Polish. The guy who had been doing the Polish show had been doing it for 20 years. And one day, I was sitting there monitoring the show from a hotel room, and I thought, you know... That sounds a lot like a commercial, even though it's Polish. It would just kind of, you know, uh, is that a Polish commercial? (laughs) Turns out uh, he had been selling these all along and not logging them or putting them down or reporting them or anything. It would just all went in one pocket and out the other. So I had to have the meeting with him about the, the, the Polish commercials. And I explained to him that the government requires us to log these. And he looks at me and says, don't talk to me about government. The government killed my parents in Poland before. And oh, my God. (laughs) How do you answer that? All right. So you had yours uh, down (laughs) south. I had mine in Utica, Rome. (laughs) Hey, you got to get me out of the Quad Cities because that's kind of where we left off. We did leave at the Quad Cities. Yeah. So let's leave the Quad Cities. And how did that come about? Well, it came about when uh, the then owner of Mid-America Radio, who owned uh, at that point, Moline, Peoria, Rockford, and Flint had just purchased a station in Indianapolis that was losing money like it was going out of style. And and he came to me and said, you wouldn't want to go over and see if you could straighten that mess out, would you? It's not a good way to sell somebody. Yeah, but I was, uh, you know, ready to go. And so off I went to Indianapolis. I spent 10 days in a motel room listening to the market because, again, fast forward, this is 1967. There is no such thing uh, as a company that would go in and try to measure uh, the marketplace. There was no broadcast research firm. I was to be the general manager 
I was the researcher. I was the guy that had to figure out what to do. Well, Indy was still a big town, though, oh, when it, you came from uh, the Quad City. It was, but, but our AM, uh, which had been owned by the Indianapolis Star News, the big newspaper, was actually ninth in an eight-station market. The miscellaneous column had more audience than WIRE had at that time. Sitting in a motel room on a Saturday afternoon reading the Indianapolis Star, I was taken aback by the fact that there were a whole page of ads for churches, for Sunday services, and all of the ads were for sects that normally are associated with the Deep South. Okay. And I looked at that and I thought, that's really odd. Here we are, you know. Uh, up in the frozen north, and, and yet there are all of these ads for the, the smaller churches that you usually uh, relegate to Alabama, Mississippi. Right. So in, in checking around, they said, oh, yeah, yeah. In World War II, uh, we had all of the defense plants. And so all of these folks moved up from Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, Arkansas, and they stayed. And so I thought, wow. Maybe country just might work. And at this point, there were no country stations outside of the Deep South. I mean, they just didn't exist. What was wire programming at the time? Uh, AOR all over the road. A uh, <laughs> little bit of everything. You know, block programming, again, Arthur yeah. Godfrey, 10-minute newscasts, uh, and extra shows and all that kind of stuff. So I decided to go to Nashville and see what I could learn about country. Somebody said, well, you need to talk to a lady by the name of Joe Walker. She runs a group called the Country Music Association. So I called her and I introduced myself. And she's a very gracious lady. She said, well, when are you coming? And I said, I was thinking next Monday. And she said, I'll have a group assembled for you on Monday morning at 10 a.m. got a group. And I'm just trying to figure out what country radio might be all about. And I walk into this uh, conference room that she had, and she introduced me to some amazing people. On the left was Tex Ritter. On the right was Wesley Rose of Acuff Rose Publication. There was Erwin Waugh, who was the president and general manager of WSM. And she called them all together because there was no one north of the Mason-Dixon line playing country music. And they were so excited about the fact that we might decide to change our format to country. The man that introduced country music north of the Mason-Dixon line, Don Nelson in Indianapolis. Show enough. You see, once again, I'm just stunned. When I hear these things, I'm just, that, that, that blows me away, Don. That really, truly does. That's just... A, the more I find out about this man, the more I'm just absolutely enthralled to hear his stories. Thank you for sharing that one. Thank you for being here. And if we can just figure out how to make all this new equipment work, we're going to be pretty awesome. We'll figure it out one day. Thanks for listening to Radio War Stories. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Like us on Facebook at Radio War Stories and call in with your questions or comments here or on Skype. Skype at RadioWarStories.com. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next week.